Good evening and welcome to Colorado Inside Out. I'm your guest host, Krista Kafer, Sunday columnist with the Denver Post. We're joined by Patricia Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward, David Kopel, law professor and research director at the Independence Institute, Tyrone Glover, civil rights attorney with Tyrone Glover Law, and Hugo Chavez-Ray, chairman of the Colorado Hispanic Republicans. A new report on Denver International Airport's failed Great Hall partnership deal reveals just went wrong, badly wrong, with a $1.8 billion deal with Great Hall Partners. What did we learn from this, and how can we avoid this kind of costly mess in the future? Patricia, what do you think we should do differently next time? Well, I would argue that Denver City Council should read the contract and maybe have more than a minute to study it before they sign it. So this goes back to August 2017, four, five years ago, when Denver City Council approved this mammoth contract for a 34-year deal with a Spanish company, Ferrovial, which was leading the charge, really didn't have experience with airports in this country. And it was if you looked at the plans, it looked like they were going to turn the Great Hall under the tent, which is a really interesting space, into a shopping mall. Not a good idea. And it took two years, finally, for everyone to realize just how badly things were going. Now, three years after that, after we pulled the plug on the deal, we find out kind of why things went so badly. Part of it is a sloppy top-down administration by DIA. Kim Day did not have her hands she, she was micromanaging at the same time she wasn't doing an overview. We'd already heard reports on she was trying to pick out bathroom tile. That is not probably what the chief administrator of DIA should be doing. They should be looking at the big picture. Are we on time? Are things working? Is the partnership working between Great Hall Partners and Ferrovial? It was an incredible boondoggle. I just flew into DIA Wednesday, pleasantly surprised. Things were smooth. Construction is going to go on, what, till 2027, 2028. I'd like a little more signage that tells you where to go because you get blocked out at every corner. I think it would be nice if Michael Hancock welcomed you to the city and explained we're under construction. But still, it's working now. Let's hope it stays on track. I was thinking like uh, comfort puppies and more tacos, but uh, I'll get back with them. <laughs> David Kopel, uh, these kinds of public-private partnerships are necessary for large projects. Are there things that we can learn from this as Denver continues to expand and develop its resources? Oh, 96 pages of what you can learn, folks, and that's the, the magic of the Internet today is you can read in all the gory detail exactly went wrong, which there's, there's quite a lot. Uh, and as, as, as Patty said, yes, there was the, the sloppy top problem, which, you know, you, you probably, with the friends you know, you might have seen it in, in home renovations, like, oh, we're, we're doing this home renovation, and then like five months into it, uh, one of the spouses says, oh, I think the wall should be over there instead of over here. Oh, you know, and, and the, the, the bathroom sink, uh, we should have a double sink instead of a regular sink. And so, yes, the, the change orders coming down from the top in a sloppy way. Those were part of the problems, but there, there was something much more fundamental. It was that this was a project that was too big for the Hancock administration to do. The Hancock administration has a long time conflict between the, the grandiosity of its vision and its competence to execute. So however great the vision is, if you don't have the, the ability 
to bring it to success, you shouldn't do it, and you should do something smaller. And that's, that's ultimately what happened at DIA, where it was scaled down. And as the report says, once they switched contractors and made it a much smaller project, uh, things have mostly worked successfully. Tyrone, he's saying that it's a competence issue. Do you think it's a competence issue, or do you think there's something else going on here? We've had P3s work in the city. We've had P3s nationally work at other you know, similarly situated airports. Uh, one of the interesting things I thought about the report is sort of the, the focus on the contract and the language in the contract. One of the first things you learn in law school, or I learned in law school at least, uh, when interpreting statutes or laws is the difference between may and shall, right? And I, I thought it was interesting that the report focuses so much on how much there's all of these mays, there's all of this ambiguity in the contracts. And so when it was time to change course, when it was trying to potentially terminate some of these relationships, it was just a big sloppy top and no one could get out from under them. No one could change course. So I think, you know, going back into this, because I think we're ultimately going to have to, really making sure that we take time with the contract um, and we make sure that there's some real binding language like shall or must. Hugo, you know, when it comes to politics, nothing is really uh, in, the, in, the, in the rearview mirror entirely. Things have a way of coming back up when elections happen. Do you think this gives the current administration a black eye and hurts Democrats going forward, or do you think it all will be forgotten? Well, <clears throat> the first uh, most glaring thing that I think we can look at on this project is that they went out and hired a foreign entity. Um, uh, I'm not sure about all the op options here in Colorado, but I, I would think that we could find a company within the state that might be uh, a good prospect for the project. And this this project for this Spanish company um, was a little new to them because uh, one of their previous projects, like London Heathrow, the airport was basically shut down while they did their work, whereas here it's been an uh, a functioning airport during the project. So there's there's that that part of it, but it sounds to me like it, too many hands in the kitty, um, uh, lack of coordination between the partners and, uh, and DIA, and uh, the Spanish company took a nice little exit uh, fund uh, as, a, as a result. So they win, and I think DIA and the city of Denver loses. A year ago, Colorado mandated employers post pay ranges on job postings. Today, there are more job seekers, but fewer online job postings, according to a new study. Additionally, this year's Colorado minimum wage has increased to $12.56 an hour. Denver's rose to $15.87 an hour. Tipped employees also saw increases. Does this alter the economic prospects for our state? David, we know that when labor costs go up, prices go up. Do you see this effects affecting our, our economy and inflation going forward? Uh, likely, yes. And, you know, the, the labor market is, is pretty tight these days. And, you know, just about everybody's seen the signs in the stores or the restaurants uh, about places that have had to cut back their hours because they can't find enough employees. And people have also seen all the signs advertising jobs for $15 an hour. You know, no need for a minimum wage. That's just where the... The market is going with the, the supply and demand. So the, the problem right now for folks who are looking for a job isn't necessarily finding a job. The problem is they keep getting a pay cut every month because of inflation. When inflation's 9% a year, that means your $15 an hour buys 9% 
less. So that that that's a large pay cut, especially for someone who's, you know, just kind of making it on, on a month-to-month basis. Now, the, the economists in, it argue about what causes inflation, but whatever it is, the Biden administration seems to be doing a lot of it. And my personal view is at least part of the cause is all the funny money they've been putting out, uh, and the Trump administration before that, with uh, extreme deficit spending and the Federal Reserve going, going wild. Tyrone, the legislature did this to help labor, to make uh, pay higher, to make pay more transparent, to help people of color and also women be more competitive when it comes to applying jobs. Could it, however, backfire and mean that labor ends up getting less than what they bargained for? I think, you know, potentially in the short term, but the long-term vision is this for this to ultimately play out in favor of workers and in favor of workers who've oftentimes been marginalized uh, historically. And I think one thing we do have to also remember um, is, you know, raising these, these wages helps us to continue to compete for labor, right, and continue to keep people who are able-bodied and able to work in Colorado. We're competing with the on-demand economy these days, right? I mean, you can go get a $15 an hour job, or you could you know, work for DoorDash or Grubhub um, or drive an Uber, right? And you know, knock that out of the park. And so I think this is also you know, indicative of us, of us trying to go with, uh, keep up with the times uh, because you know, I've seen those, neighbor, you know, those restaurants in my neighborhood. Um, you know, where they've had to close doors and, and, and shut down because they didn't have enough staff, right? Um, and a lot of times that staff is going for better opportunities, and that's coming from the on-demand economy. Hugo, you know, uh, Democrats passed these in, our, in the legislature, and I know that they meant well, but if it has some adverse consequences, could they see blowback when it comes to election? Could this actually be an issue that Republicans could vote on, I mean, a run on? Absolutely. Uh, let me start by saying I'm, I'm not a big fan of the minimum wage. Um, I believe that people should strive to, to do better. And uh, when government puts their hands into anything related to business, it's always, almost always a disaster. So uh, I believe government cannot and should not be the solution to everything. And unfortunately, we have a lot of people that believe it, it should and becomes more intrusive almost every day. Uh, government regulations uh, are running off, off the charts and small businesses are struggling because of it. So the small business owners that I speak to say they want the government out of their pockets and out of their business and, and let, let the free market take the, the, the lead in, in what takes place with regards to wages and workers. So. Uh, unless there's something really egregious, government needs to stay out. Patty, you know absolutely everyone in this town. What are you hearing about these mandates on costs and labor? Well, let's start with the demand to put in the requirement that you have to put a salary in a job posting. The law of unintended consequences stepped in here a year ago because outside companies who are hiring remote workers, a lot of them didn't want to advertise for Coloradans because they didn't want to have to put the salary in their ads. You know, I, um, as an employer, I think it's actually great to have the salary in there. It cuts down on a lot of 
back and forthing, um, awkward conversations. People know what they'll be earning if they come to you and they'll decide whether or not they want to join. By the way, I am still looking for a news editor, so you can look up that ad. Uh, but on another level, the minimum wage, it's not just that it's 15.85 now or 86. It's going to be going up over $17 come January. So you have the small businesses now that are really in trouble. And I'm talking about the restaurant types, not, not places that can definitely afford it. And what's going to have to happen is we're going to all be paying more because those restaurants are going to have to raise their prices. And that's the right thing to do, to have a real scale of what things are worth. But it is going to be really tough times come January for a lot of these smaller businesses because they're going to have to meet that. And it's still barely what people can get by, uh, even if they don't live in the heart of Denver, even if they live in a cheaper area. You know, 18 bucks is not going to do it. Around 400 Coloradans donated more than $363,000 to Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney's campaign. Nearly 140 Coloradans donated about half as much to her opponent, Harriet Hageman. Cheney is one of two Republicans on the January 6th committee investigating the Capitol riot. Why do so many Coloradans care about a race that's outside of their borders? Why do we care so much, Tyrone? We're talking about Liz Cheney here, right? She has national name recognition, um, you know, I dare say celebrity. And even though I think Coloradans and, and Democrats want to move forward, right, we want to put forth our own candidates, um, you know, in, in own sort of vision for the future, there is still the sort of never Trumpism that is very much under the surface. And there is that. Um, I guess I wouldn't say paranoia. I mean, I think it's a very real uh, concern that that sort of rise is going to come back. And uh, Liz Cheney, I think, has been viewed uh, by folks as a reliable Republican who was against Trump from the beginning and stood against him and is uh, actually serving on the committee uh, that's looking into the January 6th riots. So I think that's why there is not just a Colorado interest in this race, but a, dare I say, a national interest. Hugo, we definitely see a tension within the Republican Party between those who are very Trump-oriented and people who would like to move on and put the Trump era behind us. Uh, what are you seeing within Hispanic Republicans as the head of the Hispanic Republicans here in this state? What are you hearing? Well, Hispanic Republicans um, and actually those that are not Republicans right now as far as registration, uh, they live a very conservative life. Um, so the people that we talk to, uh, the majority of them I've talked to love Trump uh, because of what he'd done, uh, the fact that he uh, promises kept, you know, uh, unlike other politicians. With regards to Liz Cheney, I mean, you know, she's a caricature in my opinion. Um, she's going to lose and lose bad in her primary. Um, I would be interested in seeing the list of the 400 in Colorado. Uh, I want to see if I recognize anybody. Uh, we already know there are some high-dollar individuals that con uh, contributed, uh, such as Phil, Phil Anschutz. Um, and so uh, what we have to do is look at the motives. And you ask, well, why, why are Coloradans interested? Well, the ones that are donating to Cheney are people that are anti-Trump. And they want to see her succeed, kind of to stick it in Trump's eye. Um, it's going to fail. Um, it, it's, not, uh, it's not something, it's not a good strategy. Um, it's their money. They can throw it away if they want to. But more interestingly, there's Democrats that are also sending money 
to Liz Cheney and, uh, and for the very same reasons. So I think it's going to be an interesting primary next Tuesday. Patty, I know a number of Democrat, Independent, and Republican women who have given to Cheney's campaign here from Colorado. Um, when you look at the women that you know, are you seeing a trend like that? My mother gave money to Liz <laughs> Cheney. And I can say with the encouragement of her daughters, I could not disagree with you more on this. I mean, what's interesting about Liz Cheney is, I would have said 10 years ago, kind of the whole Cheney family could almost be considered caricatures of themselves. But you see the evolution in some ways that Liz Cheney has made. I mean, she wasn't for same-sex marriage, and then she got in trouble with her own sister. And she admits now that her original position was wrong, and she now is supportive of it. But she still voted for Trump, Trump's policies, what, 93% of the time? But in this case, what Liz Cheney is doing, I think, is willingly taking on a kamikaze mission for democracy with her interest in pushing for the January 6th um, investigation. She could probably have, if she hadn't done that, she could probably still have won this primary. She is not going to now. I mean, I've driven through Wyoming a lot. She is not going to win this election. But she made a conscious choice that she was going to go, I think, in favor of democracy and the people's right to know and good for her. Dave, when you look at the names of people who have donated, uh, the Post article that I read basically mentions some people who gave high dollar amounts. But a lot of ordinary people also gave small amounts to the Cheney campaign here from Colorado. Are we seeing, though, a division within the party maybe based on uh, kind of the grassroots versus, I don't know, the grass tops, if you will, the, the sort of intellectual uh, Republicans here in this state? Well, sure, there, there are plenty of Republicans who, who, who still like Trump, but the people of all parties who are donating from Colorado or elsewhere outside Wyoming who are donating to Cheney are donating because it's a Wyoming race, but it's about a guy who tried to steal a national election. After the election, Attorney General William Barr ordered the U.S. attorneys throughout the country to look into possibilities of election fraud or irregularities. And he came back several weeks later and reported truthfully that whatever they found, it was way too small scale to have made any difference in the election outcome. And Trump got that same message from every single one of his advisors who were on top of the data and the political procedures. And nevertheless, he persisted. Just as after, with phony claims of a stolen election. He did the same thing in 2016 when the Colorado State Republican Convention, the majority of the voters there, gave all 35 delegates to Ted Cruz and zero to Trump, and he said, oh, that was stolen too. Again, no evidence, complete brazen lie. All election deniers are bogus. That includes Hillary Clinton, includes Stacey Abrams, it includes every one of their enablers, a lot of whom are Colorado Democrats, and it even includes some of the members of January 6th committee who made their own bogus claims about stolen previous presidential elections. In contrast, Liz Cheney, like her father, a great Republican vice president, is a truth teller who staunchly stands up to bullies, defends American values, and has steely resolve. 
Political prognosticators say that the GOP is competitive in the O'Day-Bennett race for Senate. The 7th and 8th congressional districts are also looking good for Republicans. The GOP hopes to woo Hispanic voters who make up 16 percent of the voting Colorado electorate. Nationally, polls show Hispanic voters dissatisfied with President Biden. How do you think that will play out here in our own state? Hugo, as the head of the Colorado Hispanic Republicans, how do you see it playing out? Well, I think it's going to be a favorable year, obviously. Um, how favorable remains to be seen. But uh, on the street, the, the meetings we have with community leaders, business owners, uh, a lot of which are Democrats, uh, we have had very encouraging responses saying that they're not voting Democrat this November. They're going to vote Republican because of everything that has come down the pike from the Democrats, from the state legislature, from the government, from this governor, um, and on some national issues as well, of course. Biden is tied to just about every candidate out here, including Michael Bennett, who is, I think, more vulnerable than the media wants to uh, portray. So um, I predict um, that there's going to be a, a high turnout this November and that Hispanics are going to significantly increase in voting Republican this, this cycle. Uh, for, for the reasons that I just stated. So uh, we're very optimistic. Patty, in the time that Westward's been around, the state's gone from being sort of purplish red to purple to fairly blue. Can these Republicans break through that? Well, certainly, if you look at how the eighth has been drawn, um, it's definitely going to be a much more competitive race. They're fascinating lineups because I think in the seventh and the eighth, very, very different candidates. Ironically, because we don't have the, uh, the uh, Ron Hanks running against Bennett that we instead have Joe O'Day, that's also going to be a lot more competitive than it would have been. And I look forward to hearing all these candidates, and I would hope Colorado voters vote for the candidate and not for the party. Dave, we've got some really strong candidates in those positions, uh, mainstream centrists, and simply because the, the, the primary didn't go the way that the uh, election deniers thought it would. Do you think that these Republicans have a chance come November? One thing that, that adds to their chance is the very condescending attitude of towards Hispanics of so much of the Democratic leadership that considers itself, wrongly, to be woke and, and progressive. For example, according to the modern political correctness, you're not supposed to say Hispanic or Latino anymore. You're supposed to call these 60 million Americans Latinx, or, or maybe it's Latinx, I'm not sure. <laughs> but, but according to a, a political poll, only 2% of Hispanics actually prefer the word, 41% consider it offensive, and 30% say they're less likely to vote for someone who uses it. Another thing that offends some Hispanic voters is this idea that people from all sorts of places, all kinds of different origins, came to the United States before there was a United States, like the Tejanos in, in South Texas, or, or from wherever, that they're all supposed to identify and think the same way just because some of them have the, a, a similar skin color. And then third, and I think this is about Hugo's point about the talking to the small businesses, is that people who are upward striving and consider themselves to be living the American dream tend to vote against a party that they think overrates small business and against a party that they think doesn't self-identify as being proud to be American. We are seeing some uh, changes within the electorate right now, Tyrone. Do you think some of that will play out in the upcoming races? Absolutely. And I think to everyone's point here, you know, 
you can't look at any particular group as a monolith, right? And I think that both parties have been guilty in the past of doing that, of thinking there's certain issues that are just going to carry the day, whether it be with Hispanics, whether it be with blacks, whether it be with women. And what we're seeing, I think, is, is really a shakeup where folks are um, more informed. Um, they're really looking at, you know, the particular, and I would say almost localized and state issues, because I don't think that Biden is really you know, it's not as much of a top-down race. He's, you know, the, the local politicians' wagons are not hitched to Biden. And so I think there's much more attention on the state, on the local. And when you do that, there's more informed voters. And so I think that either party, if they start to treat these groups as a monolith, do it at their peril. And now for our favorite segment, the disgrace of the week. Patty. I hope we are not waiting three years for the report on what happened on the central I-70 um, flood zone on last Sunday night, and not just under I-70, but related streets and neighborhoods. That was disgraceful. Dave. The town of Crested Butte has outlawed natural gas in new home construction, which is a very dangerous thing uh, for people because it means when you have times when the electric grid has to reduce capacity, then people aren't going to have the power they need uh, to heat their homes or cook or, or even to use hot water. And in fact, the North American Electricity Reliability Corporation has already warned that the part of the national grid that Colorado's in is at serious risk of electrical shortfalls. So making people completely energy de uh, electricity dependent is backwards. Tyrone. Denver Police Department, again, you know, uh, in the news. A couple weeks ago, uh, firing into crowds in the lower downtown district. Uh, this week, a high-ranking police sergeant uh, arrested and charged with the internet luring of a child. What's going on over there? Hugo. For me, very predictably, it is the very partisan fueled rate of President Trump's residence uh, by a leadership that is very corrupt at the DOJ and FBI. It's never happened in our history, and I believe it's going to have some long-term consequences for the Democrats. And now let's say something nice, but keep it a bit zippy. Patty. Very close to here, Redline Contemporary Art has 48 hours of art. Redline has been a beacon during the pandemic, so good for them. Our Colorado Constitution and its Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, that's the reason the tax refund checks are coming. Don't, you, it may come with a signature of somebody who's taken all the credit. Don't believe it. It's the people who get the credit who put our Bill of Rights in our Constitution. Denver investing $150,000 in federal money into overnight parking to help people who are experiencing homelessness. For me, very personal. Um, our ninth grandchild, Ellie, is now two months old. And number 10 is on the way in September. Congratulations. That's wonderful. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for tonight. Thank you to all these wonderful panelists for your insights. And also thank you for watching Colorado Inside Out on PBS Channel 12. Check us out at pbs12.org or on our YouTube channel. And have a spectacular night.